Amen. Well, welcome once again. Uh, yeah, we're, we're looking at Genesis chapter 41. We'll be looking at this kind of, a, metaphorically speaking, this resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, no, sorry, not of Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. But the resurrection is an ascension of Joseph here is what we're looking at in chapter 41. When we left Joseph at the end of chapter 40, if you remember, he, he basically last week we looked at how this this favored son had become the forgotten prisoner. He actually, the last verse of chapter 40 says, he was unremembered. He, has, he was forgotten about as he languished in prison, in the depths of the prison. And remember how he got there. He was this young man, 17 years old. He was a young man in whom his father delighted and upon whom apparently through the dreams they had as a young man, apparently it seemed that God's favor was with him. His visions of supremacy over his brothers, supposedly given by God, enraged his brothers to the point where they despised and rejected him. They initially planned to kill them, to kill him themselves, throwing him into a pit. Yet his brother Judah suggested that they sell him for the price of a slave and delivered him over to a group of Ishmaelites. And although, as we saw as he went into the house of Potiphar, although God was with him and was blessing him and was blessing the household of Potiphar through him, and even though no guilt was found in him, he was falsely accused and unjustly sentenced to the prison in which he was forsaken and forgotten. And so we pick up, that's where we pick up this story of Joseph's life in Genesis chapter 41. He's, we find even in the first verses that it's been two years that he's been languishing in this prison, forgotten and alone. And though, so in the third year of his imprisonment, the circumstances of chapter 41, I mean, I, I think we can fairly describe them as a miraculous resurrection in the life of Joseph. More than that, a miraculous resurrection and ascension orchestrated by God for de the deliverance of the world at that time. So that's what we're going to be looking at. First, we're going to look at this, this so-called resurrection of Joseph. Um, the circumstances leading to Joseph's uh, resurrection out of that prison regard a third set of dreams recorded by Moses in these chapters. Remember, there's there's been other sets of dreams. In fact, in, in Joseph's life, it seems that these dreams come in two. So there were the dreams that he had as a young man, where he saw that uh, his status in the family would be elevated over his brothers, and even the moon and the sun would bow down before him. And those were the dreams that he had as a young man. The second set of dreams that we are confronted with in this account of Joseph's life were happened in prison where the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh were sentenced to the prison. They each had a dream, and Joseph um, Joseph interpreted the dreams, and the dreams foretold one of the baker's execution, and the other dream told of the cupbearer's restoration. And so now Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has a dream himself. In fact, it, 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 it's two dreams, but they're really, as we, we see, one dream uh, that he has one night. The first in which he sees a, a picture of seven healthy cows being swallowed up by these weak and sickly cows. And, and then he sees these seven uh, ears of grain being swallowed up by these weak and sickly 
uh, ears of grain. And when he woke up, the dream didn't leave him. It was vivid and it was troubling. And it got him to the point where, you know, he had to call out to all the magicians and the, fort- uh, probably better understood as the fortune tellers or the astronomer, astrologers of Egypt. And he called up all the wise men. And no one's interpretation of the dreams were able to bring peace to Pharaoh. I mean, it says at the end of that verse, there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Uh, some of the suggestions and commentaries say, well, they were giving interpretations, but none that mattered. None that Pharaoh said, yes, that is. That's what my dreams were speaking of. And so at that, the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph and how Joseph's interpretation of his dream in prison had come to pass. And Pharaoh, a desperate man, at that point, sends and calls for Joseph. And it says in verse 41, 14, they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Um, this is just an aside. This isn't the point of this passage, but it, it, it speaks to the trustworthiness of scriptures. In fact, when I was teaching uh, English in China, uh, we were sharing, uh, one of our team members had the opportunity to share the gospel with one of the young young women, um, one of the university students in China. And uh, she didn't really believe in the scripture. She didn't believe the scripture was trustworthy, but she was reading through the Bible on her own. And we didn't even know about this, but she had gotten a Bible, and she started in Genesis, and she started reading through. And she got to this passage, and it bothered her. It, it bothered her. What stuck out to her and what bothered her about this passage was, it, was that it says, um, they brought him up of the pit, and when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And she thought, what a strange detail to include. Like, why in the world, if you were making up this story, would you include a detail that when he got out of prison, he shaved himself and changed his clothes? And she uh, went to the library, this is at uh, Derek's University, Renmin Dasha, at People's University of China. She went to the university, and she got out every book she could on Egyptian cultures. And it didn't take her long before she realized that the Egyptian priests, the Egyptian pharaohs, all the Egyptian nobles would, would shave all the hair off of their heads and their faces uh, while they were being part of the, the, the court of the pharaoh. And she just thought... What a, what a strange detail that the Bible includes, and then she saw that it was actually in accordance with what we know of Egyptian culture, and that was actually just one of those final things that got her to see, you know, this Bible is not just a made-up story, it actually is trustworthy in the details that it records, and uh, that was one of the factors that led her to believe in Christ. So again, not part of the story, but I thought it was interesting, I wanted to share that with you. But uh, So Joseph stands in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says to him, I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph testifies to Pharaoh that it's not in him, but it's in his God. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now it's interesting, as we read this interpretation, we are not given any indication that Joseph hears Pharaoh's dreams, that Joseph then goes into a back room and prays, and the Lord says, Joseph, this is what the dream means. We're given no indication that anything like that happens. It's in fact as if the Pharaoh recounts what the dream is, 
And Joseph is able to be able to give Pharaoh the correct interpretation using, I'm left to assume, the God-given wisdom he's acquired. That Joseph is able to speak wisdom and insight into Pharaoh's dream that no one else is able to. And, And I believe it's this, that Joseph has a different picture of God. Joseph has a different picture of God than the magicians and the wise men who've been trying to tell Pharaoh what this dream means. Joseph knows the God of Israel. Joseph Joseph has this worldview in which his perception of God is able to provide him with the ability to perceive and to interpret the world. His worldview of belief in this God who's created all things, this God who is a personal God, this God who intervenes with his creation, this God who reveals himself to his creation. That worldview has allowed Joseph now to be able with wisdom and accuracy to tell Pharaoh exactly and precisely what history means. So he tells Pharaoh a number of things. I mean, first and foremost, he tells Pharaoh that his dreams, in fact, are from God. That this dream is from God. Pharaoh's soul is unsettled because he knows there's meaning in dreams. Like, Pharaoh knows something is going on with these dreams. When he woke up in the morning, he realized that something is troubling me about the vividness of these dreams that I've been having. Yet his wise men and his magicians were not able to tell him because they did not believe in a transcendent God who is above all things, who knows the end from the beginning. But Joseph does believe in that God. And so Joseph, the first thing Joseph reveals to Pharaoh is that God is, and God is speaking to him through these dreams. He then tells Pharaoh that the dream are one and the same. Joseph is able to see that the repetition of this dream is driving home one point to Pharaoh. And Joseph's able to discern wisely about that. He tells Pharaoh that this dream is relevatory. Joseph declares to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The dream is relevatory. See, there's a lot of religions in the world, right? There's a lot of systems of belief in the world. There's a lot of people in the world who worship in temples and worship idols like that they've crafted with their hands. Yet there is one God who's over all things. There's one God who created. There's one God who exists. And there's one God and one God alone who speaks. And so Joseph tells Pharaoh here, there, there is a God. There's a God who's given you this singular dream. And there's a God who's revealing to you truth about what he, who he is and what he's going to do through this dream. His magicians and his wise men didn't and couldn't and weren't able to explain that to Pharaoh. He then tells Pharaoh that the dream declares that there's purposeful intent. That, that this God who is and this God who reveals, this God has a plan. So, so he's here to reveal to you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do. 
in, in many of the ancient world, they had this conception that there were many gods, and that these many gods might have had many purposes, many intents. And you read some of the stories of the many gods back in those ancient religions, and you saw that sometimes the gods were fighting with one another over who was going to win, and whatever god gained the upper hand, that's what was going to happen. And so the, the Pharaoh's magicians, the Pharaoh's wise men, they did not have this picture of one supreme God who has one supreme intent and purpose. And so Joseph could, could, could testify to Pharaoh, there's a God, he's revealing himself, there's a God, he has one purpose, and he's revealing to you, Pharaoh, what he is intending to do. He tells Pharaoh that this dream declares a fixedness. He says the, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. So there's a fixedness to the intent of this one true God, and that there's an urgency to it, that God will shortly bring it about. And so I, what, what I see here is Joseph is hearing this dream of Pharaoh, and Joseph knows this God who is, this God who has purpose and intent, this God who is personal, this God who's revealer, this God who brings his purposes to pass. And Joseph is able to hear this dream and say, yes, I know what's going on. God is intending to do this quickly to you and through to, and, and to the nation. And finally, Joseph gives Pharaoh counsel. This, this might be an overstep. As Joseph is only been asked to provide an interpretation of the dream. He hasn't necessarily been asked to be an advisor. Yet the Lord's wisdom not only gives Joseph the ability to discern the dream, but the clarity to see a path forward. And so he advises Pharaoh, Now let Pharaoh select discerning and wise men and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let him gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are about to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. And so this counsel that Joseph gives Pharaoh becomes what leads to the most shocking turn of events probably in the entire book of Genesis. And this is, this is not just that Joseph is brought up out of prison but he's actually seated to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. So it says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh. I'm oh, sorry. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there's the spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's, so, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You should be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And he took a signet ring from his hand, and put it on Joseph's hands, and clothed them in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, his second in command. They called up before him, bowed the knee, and thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Joseph is made second commander with one of the most powerful nations on earth at the time. You know, so much in the story of Joseph, so much in the telling of the account of Joseph, Moses puts a focus on Joseph's clothes. Like, have you noticed that? I don't know why Moses fixates on this idea of Joseph's clothes, but it's from when we're first introduced to Joseph. He, beyond all his brothers, is given that, what is that called? I, 
I was in that play called the Technicolor Coat or whatever. But he's given that, that multicolored coat which sets him apart from his brothers and drives their anger against them. And then when his brothers take him and, and are attempting to murder him, they strip him of that coat, right? And they throw him then naked into the pit. And they take the coat back and they say to the father, is this, is this your son's? And then he's at Potiphar's house and he has this other garment on. Probably the garment of the servant of Potiphar's house. But again, that garment is stripped of him as uh, by Potiphar's wife's hand. And that's what sends him into prison. When he comes out of prison, it said, we looked at that, he washed himself and put on new clothes as he comes into the Pharaoh's presence. So his third change of clothes in this short story of his life, and now the fourth. The fourth change of clothes, we have Joseph's ascension now to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. This garments of fine linen, he's given a gold chain, he's given this signet ring, and all are given to him as a sign of Pharaoh's authority, which has now been conferred upon Joseph. He's even given a new name. He's given a new office, a new wife. He's, he's given a new life. And he does, according to the plan he proposed to Pharaoh, start piling resources in the land of plenty and distributing them during the years of famine. So that in this way, not only the Egyptians, but as it says here, many of the inhabitants of the earth are saved. So when the famine had spread over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy, to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. It is clear, and has been clear for Christian interpreters of many generations, that Joseph's resurrection from the pit of prison and ascension to the right hand of Pharaoh is the most expansive picture yet in Genesis of the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in one of his descendants. Right, that promise back in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a blessing, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now we've seen this in part as we've gone through the book of Genesis. We've seen how Abraham rescued the inhabitants of the valley of Sodom. We saw how the house of Laban was blessed by Jacob sojourning among them. Yet no picture thus far has given this picture in its fullness here of one of Abraham's descendants actually literally being a blessing and salvation to the earth. However, this is still only a partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And in fact, we know this is not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise that one of Abraham's descendants will bless the earth. How do we know that this is only a partial fulfillment and not the ultimate fulfillment? Because Joseph's where? He's in Egypt. Right? Part of that promise of that blessing to be all nations of the earth was that I will give you a land and you will be a blessing. Another, another reason why we know this is only a partial fulfillment of that promise and not the fullness of the fulfillment is that Joseph's not a nation. He's just an individual. And God had told Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you a land and I will make you a blessing. And so we see here that Joseph, though 
is a picture of, a partial fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. He is not the fullness of the promise. And Joseph is actually, we know from the text itself, that Joseph is actually aware of this himself. Because the book of Genesis ends, at the end of the book of Genesis, the last verses of the book of Genesis end with Joseph on his deathbed speaking to his sons. You can turn there, I don't have the verse up. But Joseph in chapter 50, it says in verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died beyond 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph, even though Joseph was a partial picture of the promises to Abraham, and even though God used him to bless the nations around him, Joseph himself knew he was not the ultimate deliverer. And he pointed to a time when God would raise them out of Egypt and bring them back into the land. And he said, do not let my bones stay here. When you go back, when God delivers you, you bring my bones back there to the land that God has promised. And this is how the author of Hebrews puts it. The author of Hebrews says, this is the great faith of Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So even though Joseph is a picture of the deliverer, Joseph still himself even has faith in a greater deliverer that is to come. He's a foreshadowing of that deliverer. He's a foreshadowing of the ultimate son of Abraham who will come and who will truly be the blessings to the nations, Jesus Christ. Joseph is a picture, a partial picture of the fullness of Jesus Christ. We call that, in biblical studies, we call that a type. Right? A type or typology. I want to say a couple words of this because it might be a new concept for you unless unless you were here for our, our, our series we did in the book of Hebrews. Because in the book of Hebrews, we talked about this stuff quite a lot. In the book of Hebrews, we understood that God is doing something in the writing and the authoring of scriptures where we see that there's shadows that point to the substance that God has for us in Christ and in the full revelation of the new covenant. And so, just a little mention of what is a type. A type understands that biblical history, while being a true and accurate account of what happened, is but a shadow pointing to the substance of Jesus Christ and life in the new covenant. That was one of the biggest things that impacted me as I preached through the book of Hebrews. But the, I realized as I was preaching through the book of Hebrews that my worldview, even as a Christian, was not the worldview of the biblical authors and of the apostles of the New Testament. See, my worldview in Canada is that the things that I see are what are real. Right? The things that I... We've got these nice pumpkins up here for some reason. It must be Thanksgiving coming up. But that the things that I see and that I can hold on to... The, my worldview as a Canadian is that those things are substantial and those things are real. And what I understood as I was preaching through the book of Hebrews that the, the author of Hebrews had a completely different world understanding of the worldview. His understanding was, yes, these things are real, but they are of lesser substance than the realities 
of the invisible things in Christ. And so biblical history, while it is real, while it was an accurate accounting of what happened, I believe Joseph truly was sent to Egypt by his brothers. I believe Joseph truly was ascended to the second, to the right hand of Pharaoh. But that all these things of the Old Testament were but shadows pointing us to the substance in Jesus Christ. That there's pictures here. So typology recognizes that though there is one human writer of Scripture, there are two authors of Scripture, the human and the divine. So while the human author recorded his accounts according to his purpose, God is also moving the author to write according to his intent. Listen, there's no doubt. I do not have any doubt in my mind that Moses was recording for us that Joseph was a partial deliverer. That's the whole point of Joseph's account, is how God used Joseph in the sovereignty, the providence of God, to lift Joseph up, to the, up out of the prison, to save his brothers, and to save the world of that time. As Moses himself indicates by ending the book of Genesis with Joseph's death, Moses also understood Joseph is not the ultimate deliverer. However, Moses could not have understood how much the life of the ultimate deliverer would be a fulfillment of his account of the life of Joseph. I don't believe Moses could have understood how much those lives would parallel one another. Yet God gives us this picture of in Joseph of Jesus. And that means as we look backward from the cross, we see pictures of Jesus in the historical accounts that God intended us to see and that the human authors suggested but did not fully understand. That the human authors suggested, Moses knew Joseph was not the ultimate deliverer. But he did not understand, he didn't see the full picture of who the ultimate deliverer would be, even though his writings gave a blurred picture of him. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1.10. He says, concerning this salvation, the salvation that has been revealed in Christ, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This means that they prophesied, they wrote, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, yet they did not understand exactly how and exactly what way the Spirit in them was pointing that the that Christ would come. The third thing about typology is just to understand that we can go too far in it. We can go beyond what the intent of Moses or the intent of God, the Holy Spirit, intended in their right. So typology is not allegory. Allegory is a point-for-point correlation. Typology is, I would say, a prophetic symbol. It's a picture that, though blurry, finds its focus in Christ. And so we don't need to hunt down in the story of Joseph every little detail and find out how every little detail applies to the life of Christ. We don't have to look at the life of Christ and try to find how every little detail is fulfilled in the life of Joseph. It doesn't work like that. It's a blurred picture that finds its focus in Christ. But once you see Christ, you see it. Once you see the realities of the new covenant, 
You understand the old. So for example, one of the few New Testament passages that reflects on the life of Joseph, Stephen testifies to the Pharisees. He says, The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt, but God was with them, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. This is the sermon he's giving to the Pharisees. And at the end of that sermon, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen understood that just as Joseph was opposed by his brothers, so Christ was opposed by those who would see those same brothers as their fathers. In other words, even though Joseph wasn't the son through whom the line of the Savior would be established, he's still a picture of God's elevating his chosen one over the satanic resistance directed at him by evil men. Joseph is a picture of the promise to Abraham, a partial fulfillment in his generation, a blessing to the nations, a triumph of the plan of God over the wicked intentions of man, but he's not the ultimate fulfillment. And Joseph himself would point us to Jesus, who is also a young person favored by God and men, who is also rejected and despised by his brethren for claiming a unique position among them, who is also handed over to Gentiles for the price of a slave, who was also falsely accused of wickedness, though no sin was found in him. He was also unjustly assigned the fate of the wicked. He was also raised up from the pit, yet in a literal and not in a figurative way. He was also given authority over the earth by the king over all. And he also became the savior of all who would seek his aid. He also offers bread of life freely to those who come to him in our spiritual famine. Jesus is the greater Joseph. Let me leave you with two words that come out of this chapter detailing the resurrection and ascension of Joseph. There's two words here in this chapter that speak to the Lord's salvation that we need to hear today. These are two words that Joseph found so significant that he named his children these two words. And these are the two words that I hope encourage us and admonish us today. The two words are forget and fruitful. Forget and fruitful. The two words come from the names Joseph gives his two sons in the midst of his ascension to the right hand of Pharaoh. And they speak to what God was doing in and through him in raising him up. And they speak to us today. In Genesis 41.50, he names his two sons. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. As and at the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of Ome, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. And he said, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I want you to think back over the last couple weeks. I want you to think back about the story of Joseph that we've been reading over the last number of weeks. I want you to think back of all that he suffered of all the betrayal, of all the anger directed at him by the wrath of his brothers, of the attempt to murder, of the selling of a brother into slavery, of the raising up in Potiphar's house and then being falsely accused 
and thrown into prison unjustly. Of being forgotten for over two years. Thirteen years of his life. We, we learn in this passage in Genesis 41. He's now 30 years old. It's been 13 years of his life since his brothers sought to kill him. 13 years of his life as a slave and as a prisoner. And yet, Joseph gives his firstborn son the name Manasseh, which sounds like the Hebrew for, he has made me to forget. As he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. And and the phrase is likely better understood, God has made me forget the suffering of my father's house. It's It's not that Joseph forgets his family during this time. He remembers his family. In fact, he's going to be reconciled in the chapters to come. But he has forgotten the suffering. He's forgotten the hardships of his father's house. He is choosing not to remember them. It signifies that as Joseph has been raised up by the Lord, the stain of his family's sin has been removed, set aside, and remembered no more. This is what redemption does. For for, for some of you guys, you, you understand this. This is redemption. This is redemption. That when you see the salvation of our Lord in Jesus Christ, the hardships, the suffering, the sin of your father's house, the suffering, the, the, the targeted arrows that have been set upon you by those who've hurt you or betrayed you, when you see salvation in the Lord, you recognize that God has chosen no longer to remember your sins against that against Him, and that you then can also choose to forgive the sins that have been directed toward you. This is salvation. That God has said, this is about the new covenant now. This is how we see this fulfilled in the new covenant. God has said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel for those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Manasseh, he has made to forget. God says also in Psalm 103, 9, he says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Although we have sinned against God in a far greater way than Joseph's brothers have sinned against him, God has declared that because of the work of Jesus Christ, suffering a death in our place, on our behalf on the cross, and God has raised him up from the dead, declaring that forgiveness of sins is available to all who call upon his name. And when we call on the name of Jesus Christ, we are given this promise, this promise of the new covenant of forget. That God says, I will remember their sins no more, and as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed their transgressions from us. Forget. And because God has forgotten us, God, God God has released us of our sins, 
How much more can we release those who have sinned against us? That's why we pray when we gather together each week. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The connection between finding the release of our sins, the, the forgetfulness of our sins in Christ, and us not holding sins against our brothers. The second word that Joseph proclaims in his ascension is fruitful. Joseph called the name of his second-born son Ephraim, and he said, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The name Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew for made fruitful. This is an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture of what God does in our salvation. God takes, God takes those who have been languishing. He has taken those who have, you know, for us, we have not only, not only not borne fruit for God, we have been destructive to God's name and been destructive to God's character. We have opposed God's at his purposes. And yet God can take us who were unfruitful and he can proclaim over us fruitfulness. This is what Jesus said why he chose us. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is in the context of Jesus saying, I'm I'm the true vine. My Father's the gardener. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You'll bear fruit of righteousness. You'll bear fruit of love. You'll bear fruit of joy and bear fruit of peace. You'll bear fruit of seeing a harvest for the gospel as you go forth and proclaim the salvation in Christ. And so I love this picture here of Joseph having been raised up out of the pit, having been ascended into the right hand of Pharaoh, having these two words on his lips. Forget. I've forgotten the afflictions of my father's household. And fruitful. God has made me fruitful. I want to leave you today with just this appeal. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you may still be in that pit of your sins against the holy God. The, the, God's justice is still upon you. And yet he has provided a means by which you could be saved, in which you could be forgiven, in which God would say of you, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed transgressions from you. I want to encourage you today that you might be in your life saying, okay, God, well, you can't use me. I can't see, Lord, how you could ever possibly do anything through me. If Christ has said, no, I have chosen you, that you might bear much fruit. Look to him. Don't just look to Joseph. Look to the greater deliverer, Jesus Christ. Call out to him today and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, make me fruitful for you.